Marcella stared at the bundle of cash and whistled, but I stared straight at the governor's face, completely stunned. Suddenly, everything seemed surreal. I was stoned. Two strange, beautiful Bolivian women were in my prison cell drinking black label whiskey, and the highest-ranking official in the jail was asking me to buy cocaine for him. It says dirtbags in the title. We can do what we want. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Мы открылись миру, открылись, отказались от вмешательства в чужие дела, от использования войск за пределами страны. И нам ответили доверием, солидарностью и уважением. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game's mine. I, I eventually just stopped. I stopped doing notes. Like I was like, I can't, I can't. I have 14 pages on my phone's like note thing. And I'm like, I'm just rewriting this book. Cause I like all of the things that happen. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's crazy. I smashed through this book. This is a book that I, after I got probably halfway done, three quarters of the way done, I was reluctant to read it because I didn't want it to end. I always wanted to have this book as something to go read, and it, which is silly to say because I have this book and I can read it whenever I want. I could read whatever chapter, whatever portion, however much, however little I want, right? But the first time through, I was like, I just didn't want it to end, you know? It was like a really good movie, and I just did not want this like good book to be done with. Yeah, one hundred percent, man. I was I was exactly the same way. Like when I finished it, I was like, "Is there more? Can I read more?" I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's like you you know, it's a real man's life story, but you're like, I kind of wish his sentence was longer. <laughs> like, I don't. What do you mean he's just free now and he's gonna go live his life? Like, I don't. I want to hear more, dude. It, honestly, it kind of made me want to go live in that prison. This is one hell of a book. It's written by Rusty Young, and it's called Marching Powder. It's uh, the true life of an English drug smuggler, a notorious Bolivian prison, and enough cocaine to cover the Andes. That's the subtitle. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is one hell of a read. And I, you would sort of explain what the book was about before either one of us had read it. And then when I started reading, I'm like, oh, this is nothing what I imagined it to be. This is way better. Right. And, you know, my description was kind of wrong. I had thought that this was essentially the Rusty Young and Thomas McFadden story. Like, I thought this was the story of uh, Rusty Young, like, getting into this prison and and spending time in there. But that's a very small portion, right? Like this is um, Thomas McFadden's story and Rusty is just kind of like some subtext in one point, you know? Like he's a big part of how the book comes to be. But, you know, the beginning is kind of like, hey, Rusty went in and met this guy and whatever. And then here's his story. And I was like, oh, what? This is like, I had kept explaining it as like, yeah, that's the story of this guy that like goes into a prison and stays there for three months. And 
I was like, damn, but it's, it's way better the way it is than what I, what I thought it was going to be. My expectations were surpassed. And I think like how I understood the book was how you had described it in the preface episode, right? Of the season. And I like that Rusty Young is just like, gives us a few pages in the beginning just to kind of set the scene. And then he disappears and it's Thomas McFadden's story basically for the majority, like for 99% of the book. And Rusty really, he's not even really a central character in the final chapters. Like he's an important part of the story, but it's, it's about Thomas and it's about his time in the La Paz, right? In uh, the San Pedro pit prison. Yeah. And the funny part is the little snippet you get in the beginning of like Rusty talking about Thomas McFadden, it actually kind of makes it sound like they don't like each other. <laughs> like it's like he gets caught taking these tapes out and Thomas McFadden is like, you're fucking up my life, man. Like I told yeah. you these people weren't playing. And I'm like, do these guys get along at all? <laughs> like, and it actually, he kind of makes Thomas sound like, I, well, actually, they both say some mean things about each other in this book, and I kind of wondered if the, how they reconciled that. But like when my first impression of Thomas from what Rusty wrote is I was like, oh, yeah, like he's like a kind of a mean, hardened, you know, drug smuggler that's living in a Bolivian prison. You know, he's probably going to be a tough guy. You really don't expect like just how fun and funny he is once you get into his story, right? Yeah, you're right. Because I think I think I was expecting that sort of, archetype or that stereotype of just like the hardened international drug smuggler, right? The hardened criminal. Like I expected this guy to have been in jail many times before. And this was like nothing new to him, but he, he was kind of a softy, you know? And so I guess in that way, you know, we're really starting from the, from the ground up when it comes to understanding what it's like, like to be in prison in, in the San Pedro prison, right? Yeah, like you said, he is kind of a softie. Like, you get a lot of vulnerable moments, and you definitely get the the idea of, like, when he gets into the prison, that this is not a hardened criminal, you know? He's very afraid of everyone in there. Like, they're hardened criminals, and he's just kind of a guy. And he almost has this, like, I don't know, this really, like, lighthearted attitude about the crimes that he's committing, like in the beginning when he's talking about being a drug smuggler and he's like, lots of people get caught because they're just bad at it, but I'm just really good at it. So I don't get caught. You know, he's like, I can tell when there's like undercovers at the airport and whatever. He's kind of just nonchalant about it. And he's like the way that I do my things, like the way that I package my drugs to get them out of the country through the airport. It's just like undetectable. And he just, yeah, he just doesn't really seem like, like your typical criminal. No, and like he calls it a game, right? And he, he uses that word a few times when he's talking about how he gets drugs through the airport. He's like, it's a game and, you know, you got to look for this and then, you know, you have to act this way, but you can't act too much that way or else then they're going to know that you're up to something. So he really breaks it down how you adjust your personality and your psychology when you're going through an airport. Because it sounds like, I don't know if we ever get a true sense of how much cocaine Thomas McFadden has trafficked in the past. We just know that he gets busted in the airport with five kilos and you're right. It's, it's just like regular business to him. It's not like it was his first time trying to do this and he got pinched. It was just like the one time somebody sold him out 
and now he's in big trouble with the authorities. Yeah, because he kind of gets double-crossed, right? The only thing that they kind of mention of his history, because I was wondering the same thing. I'm like, is this guy super rich? Like, he's like an international cocaine smuggler. Like, is he doing well for himself? And the only hint we really get of it is they mention that he once lost 45 kilos in Brazil, but didn't do any jail time for it. <laughs> so, like, he somehow got out of it. Of says, it's so yeah. much. Like, yeah, so they arrest him with what ends up getting shaved down to, like, 850 grams, and he gets four and a half years or something. That's 850 grams. Like, in Brazil, he somehow managed to lose, like, in the airport, 45 kilos. That's a lot of money, especially when you consider, I think he says it's about $100 a gram is what it was selling at at the final product. That's millions of dollars. You know, like, so I, I, but I couldn't tell, you know, like when he gets arrested, he seems like he has some access to money, but it doesn't sound like, you know, he's some Hollywood-esque, like, multi-millionaire drug smuggler. No, because I think there was mention of, he had a watch that might have gotten taken, and then there was a ring that had the Queen of England on it, because it turns up, the ring turns up uh, at like a witness uh, or the witness or one of the police officers is wearing it uh, at a court date later on. And he's like, that's my ring. Like that's, it's got the queen of England on it. Like you guys are from, so I'm from like England, man. Like that's my ring. Yeah. He's like, no, no, no. I bought it. I bought it here in Bolivia. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, what's on it? Well, you wouldn't know what's on it. I know what's on it. And then you would think would be like damning evidence that like, yeah, they just confiscated all my shit. Like these, they're crooks. And then they acknowledge that the guy with the ring didn't know what's on it. And then Thomas McFadden does. And then they're kind of just like, yeah, oh, well, that's a weird coincidence. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. Dude, the the corruption in the legal system here, it's insane. Like when he first gets arrested and he says, you know, to, to like the head police officer at the airport or at the, the FELCN or whatever it is, like the drug uh, facility. Oh, it's. Yeah, or are you talking about like the, because there's that special, or are you talking about the F-E-L-C-N? Yeah, that's the one, F-E-L-C-N, which is like their, essentially their like drug task force prison or whatever, right? And uh, he goes, I want to speak to a lawyer. And the guy just laughs and says, this isn't United States, you're in Bolivia. Like, <laughs> like just, it's it's funny to them that they think, you know, that someone would think they're going to get a lawyer. Like, no, 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 you're going to be held here for a while. And then as long as we want, and then you're going to go to court and they're going to decide to sentence you for like, well, that you're going to have a court case later on to get your verdict. But in the meantime, you're just going to spend years in prison until, you know, you get an actual verdict, like without seeing a lawyer potentially for months. It's nothing like how I understand the legal system, whether that be in, let's say, Canada, the United States, where let's say you get busted for a crime, okay, you end up in jail, you post bail or whatever that looks like, or put up bail, and then you get out, and then you go to your court date, and then you start doing that whole thing. And then in the meantime, right, if you get guilty, then you go to jail. It's like, no, you're you're in jail from day one when you get pinched in Bolivia. Yeah, like they they hadn't even like put a charge on him yet. And he actually kind of, I mean, the arrest was hilarious, to be honest with you. I laughed so much. 
when he first gets like double crossed in the airport and he's in this room and they're like, Oh, the dogs like detected something in your suitcase. And so they bring in the three suitcases which he's kind of strategically like hidden all the drugs in one with like a super high tech system of like, uh, pressing into thin sheets, it's plastic wrapping and then coating with chili powder and then plastic wrapping and then coating with chili powder again and then plastic wrapping and then coating with coffee grinds and then plastic wrapping and then putting another plastic layer over it and melting the edges of it so it's like airtight and sliding it into like these the seams like the backing and the sides and stuff right instead of the top and bottom of the suitcase where people would usually have a a false bottom and then also brings two other suitcases that just have women's clothing in them (laughs) and none of the suitcases have his name on them and then so the dogs are like oh well they're they're like well the dogs caught you know something from your suitcase and they bring in these three suitcases that don't have any names on them and they just start tearing them open and all they're finding is just like women's clothing and they're like what is going on here well that was the whole thing uh when he met with that colonel lanza uh, to arrange how, because he was the guy that was going to get paid off to get the drugs to the airport, right? Yeah. So he didn't even check any of these bags. It's not like he even walked in the airport with these bags, right? They were all kind of brought in after the fact. And so they were like, yeah, so I guess these are your bags. And so, of course, he was double-crossed because, like you said, it wasn't like he had a tag on him and said Thomas McFadden, right? Like they were going to be put in the plane like under his name for him, right? So him and the bags of the cocaine in it, they were never never together in the airport at all. Yeah, and and he said that he explains his system, right? Like on the other end, he doesn't even claim them. Like so they don't need his name on them. They get left at the carousel, they get put into lost baggage, and then he has like a customs agent that he knows who comes and swaps them out with two identical suitcases because it's super easy for a customs agent to get cases out of an airport, right? They're just like, Oh yeah, go ahead. Pretty sophisticated when you think about how he was trapped or smuggling cocaine, right? Like he wasn't just some cowboy that was like, okay, going to South America, getting coke and bringing it back to Europe. Like, no, like he had put time and money and thought into how this was going to go down and had other people involved, right? Yeah, absolutely. Which maybe explains why we don't get the impression that he's like a millionaire smuggler because his system involves enough people that you're going to take a hit, but you should be able to get away with it. And like, clearly the dogs didn't detect anything right like because they couldn't figure out which suitcase anything was in and then once they don't find anything they're like well this doesn't make any sense you know they just knew because he got ratted out by the guy that was supposed to be his connection that these suitcases would have something and they just needed to keep tearing them apart but this (laughs) the scene when they finally find the cocaine and he like lunges and tears the packets up and it just covers the room in cocaine. And it's like five <laughs> kilograms of cocaine just so blown much. up everywhere. <laughs> like he said, it's over like the colonel's face and everything. Like, <laughs> oh my God, it's fantastic. I, you, you know, I was, I was actually surprised. Like, because at this point in the book we don't really get a clear sense of who Thomas is. Right. But based on what he's telling us, like I thought that he was a little bit more sophisticated than somebody that would just be lunging out like that. 
So I was, I was, to be honest, I was surprised. It's hilarious that cocaine just went everywhere. But I was also surprised that he did it because I didn't take him. My, like I said, we don't really know much about his character yet, but I didn't take him as somebody that would actually react like that. I see what you're saying, but I guess at the same time, like he, what do you do? Because he tried to like make a dash for the toilet or something, right? Actually, that was what, so he asked to use the washroom, gets walked to the nearest bathroom, and then takes note that the toilet actually flushes properly. And then when he comes back, he goes, I'm going to make a mad dash and take this packet of cocaine and run it to the bathroom and then try to flush it all. Because once the evidence gone is gone, then, you know, it is what it is. But they, he can't get out. So I guess it was just like a Hail Mary attempt to... And I mean, if you look at it, like, it, all they could recover was 850 grams. So there's like, you know, 4.1 kilograms of cocaine just in the carpet of that interview room. <laughs> Like, and all over everybody's outfits. And he still gets like almost five years for 850 grams. And I think he swallowed some packets or something, right? 70 grams, does, yeah. Yeah, he, he manages to get cocaine into the prison, which later on just is like, the, the other prisoners laugh at him. He's like, dude, we get coke in here and it's really cheap. Yeah, it's basically worthless. Well, and the crazy part is, so he spends 13 days in that FELCN facility before he even gets to the actual prison. And he mentions that the guards always escort him to the washroom and like stand outside. So he can't do anything with that cocaine. So whenever he passes those balls of cocaine, he just has to wash them and re-swallow them oh, until he can get back to the actual prison. In which case, oh. like, he's thinking, like you said, like, oh, this is going to be worth something. Like, I'm going to have some some uh, leverage in prison with this. And he gets there and shows them to, the, like, one of his first people that he meets, and they they just laugh. They're like, yeah, that's, <laughs> like, 70 grams. You think that's a, that's a good chunk of money normally, but there they're like, that's, why would we want that? It's probably not even that good. <laughs> Like the best, the best cocaine in the country comes from this prison right here. <laughs> like the, oh man. The, um, like I couldn't imagine just the shock, especially like, so the first moments in that prison, like just mind boggling the scene that he wakes up to on the first day. It's just, you know, he, so he gets there that night. They just check him in and throw him into this courtyard in the pitch black and just say, here you go. And he crawls into some like dark basement somewhere and sleeps in like a sewage drain facility and comes back up in the morning to a courtyard with like families and kids and storefronts and shit. Like you would think that you're high. Every moment for his first like month in that prison is just like, pardon? Like what are you telling me right now? Keep in mind, uh, Bolivia is a Spanish-speaking country, and Thomas McFadden, at this point, speaks absolutely no Spanish. And so when he gets into the prison, they're, like, pressuring him for money, and he just, like, doesn't understand. He just thinks that they want a bribe, right? And he doesn't realize that there's, like, a legitimate system where you have to, like, pay an entrance fee, and then the guards give you a receipt that you paid. It's not like it's like a bribe that's just been normalized. Like, no, you pay to get into prison and then they give you a receipt. Like that's just, can you imagine you get pinched and then you're like getting locked up in Bowdoin, Alberta or Drumheller 
right? And you're going to prison and they're like, okay, 25 bucks to enter. You're like, what? <laughs> like it's obscene, right? Oh, and that's on top of the fact that like they take him from his original holding facility to the prison in a cab. And when they get there, they're like, hey, pay the fare. Like, you have to pay for your cab to jail. And then when you get in there, they're like, hey, you have to pay the entrance fee. It's like 25 American dollars. If you can't afford to pay it, you have to work six months in the kitchen to pay it off. What? What is the hourly equivalent on that? Oh, man. And then the biggest shocker is that they like give him this binder, right? And start flipping through it. And there's like a bunch of Spanish writing and it's all categorized. And eventually, and of course he doesn't understand. And then eventually they kind of get it through to him. Like you have to buy a cell. Like you don't get to stay here for free. You have to, you have to pay for your own cell, buy or rent. And he's like, I don't like, I don't have any money. How much is it? And they're like, Oh, $5,000 American. Like I wouldn't even know how to react. You'd be like, is this a, is this a joke? Like how, how is this legal in any way? Cause I think he he doesn't even really understand how the prison works at this point, and they're all nonchalant about it. And he just thinks that he's like they're just trying to fleece him for money, which he didn't have. Like he's got zero dollars. Like everything was already taken from him at the FELCN facility, right? Even if he had the money at that point, he couldn't do anything about it anyways, right? So they're just like, okay, well, figure it out, you know? Yeah, just throw him into this courtyard, and maybe you're gonna die. And he has a massive lung infection at this point. Like he's coughing up blood from the 13 days at the FELCN facility where they just left him in the cold with like no food, no water, no bedding. Like just a brutal experience. Like he said he legitimately thought he was going to die. Oh, it was pretty destitute. Yeah. And then finally, well, he actually gets to San Pedro prison because he like says, like he like refuses to go back into his holding facility. And they're like, well, your only other option is to go to prison. Like, is that really what you want? And he's like, yes, yes, please send me to the prison because if I spend one more night here, I'm going to die. Yeah. Cause that reminds me, it gets cold in Bolivia. Right. And so I remember uh, he was describing how cold it was in that original holding cell. And in some of the cells, even in San Pedro, and later on in his story, when he ends up in solitary, um, it's like cold. Like, And he's like, please. At that point, he's like, please send me to prison. Because he's thinking he's going to get looked after. When it comes to all the prisons in the world, it's strange to say, I feel like he got lucky. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. Well, he definitely mentions that there is one other prison in Bolivia that is terrible. That's just notorious for people dying. But there's such a weird system in San Pedro prison that like, you can kind of thrive in a way, you know? Every other prison is like, you're a prisoner, it is what it is. Like, all the cells are the same, just depends on who you're next to or who you're with, I guess. But in San Pedro, like, if you have charisma and some skills and you can really thrive and make, like, a life of it. Like, there's people in there that are doing better than some of the civilians outside of the prison because of the poverty in that country, right? It it still blows me away that there's men that are living with their families in prison. And then during the day, the kids go to school. Sometimes it's in the prison. Sometimes they got to leave the prison to go to school. The wives got jo- sometimes have jobs outside of the prison. And it's just a known thing that, oh yeah, so-and-so's wife and kids are back. Let them back into the prison, right? It's so backwards and jarring when you think of what a prison should be in your brain. That is not what San Pedro is. There's still a lock on the front gate. 
you know, there's, there's still guards. There's still like a major that's running the show, right? It's not like you're in, you know, Shawshank or anything like that. Well, and there's such an interesting scene early on. He gets jumped by like seven guys and one of them has a knife. And in the middle of him getting this just royal ass kicking, somebody like shouts, Nina, Nina. And they're like, everyone kind of stops. And there's a pause. And the guys that are beating him up kind of reluctantly, like reluctantly back against the wall. And this little girl goes walking by. Like somebody's kid is walking down the hall where he's getting his ass kicked. And they, the prisoners just have this general rule where there's like no gang beating someone in front of the kids. Like there is some sort of societal standards that they have to live by, which like saves his life because he's able to like get away when the kid comes by. But it's like this is like hardened criminals and they're all like, oh, so-and-so's daughter's walking by. Everyone chill the fuck out for a second, you know? And it's funny because the official position on this, like from the Bolivian government, is still to this day that like there's no kids living in the prison, that like families don't live there together, that tours aren't available, you know, like that the the inmates don't have to buy their own cells. Like all of this, it's the official position is that none of that is true. Despite the fact that there's people that like have videos from inside the prison. They're just like, mm, nope, that doesn't happen. Thomas really gets lucky because there's the gentleman Ricardo that takes him under his wing, right? The really nice, he seems like he's kind of not necessarily an older guy, but he's definitely been around the block a few times and kind of saves his ass and ends up calling him like Inglis, right? Like, cause he's from Inglaterra, which is Spanish, not the best Spanish pronunciation, but that's Spanish for England. Right. Right. So they, they just call him English because to be from America, to be a gringo, like that's a bad thing. And that's why he was being targeted by some of those prison gangs. Cause they thought he was an American. So Ricardo kind of helps him right from day one. It's like, no, no, we're going to call you English. And that's like, Ricardo calls him that right until the moment when, you know, Ricardo ends up getting out of jail, right? Because it's like, no, no, you're not from America. And he isn't like, he's uh, like British Tanzanian or something like that. So yeah, like being a gringo bad in in San Pedro. So funny because when he meets Ricardo, Ricardo was kind of like, Hey motherfucker, where are you from? And he yeah. was going to like beat him up. And then he's like, Oh, you're from England. He's like, no, that's cool. England's okay. <laughs> we like England. And then you find out that Ricardo himself is from New York. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, well, wait, if you're from New York, like, why don't they kill you? And you, you just immediate regret, right? Ricardo's like, hey, shut the fuck up, man. Like, I have a Bolivian passport. I'm only kind of from New York, but I'm only from New York when I need to be. And right now is not when I need to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ricardo's an interesting character. Like, he kind of struck me as someone that could have been a drama student when he was younger. You know, like, he kind of has this flair to him. Like, every once in a while, he'll do the, like, gay man impersonation and whatever and oh yeah and he's very like you know dramatic and when he's doing the scene like with when he's becoming a bit of an economist there when he's talking about like the the highs and lows of buying in prison and whatever and like (laughs) he seems very larger than life in a lot of scenes but only you know inside his own cell with thomas like outside he's very much a regular prisoner but they seem to get comfortable enough together that he kind of puts on this show and he's a little bit more dramatic but like you said like he's he's really his guiding light in a lot of ways he explains the prison system you know he explains to him that you always want to make sure everyone knows that you're english 
when to buy, when to sell, how to survive, who to avoid, what areas, because there's like, I mean, there's damn near like a Yelp for the prison. Like there's, you know, Google reviews on which neighborhood and the cell blocks you live in. Like there's a star rating system. So he's like, yeah, you've got to like, these are the places you want to live. These are the places you don't want to. This is how much money you need. This is the respect you need to have. Like, Without him, I don't think Thomas would have made it a week. Probably not, because Ricardo was also helping uh, Thomas learn Spanish too, right? Because he'd mm. send him on errands. He's like, "Hey, go to this shopkeeper," because there's different prisoners had diff- like they had their own shops. There's like a a butcher. You could go get like fresh meat from one of the others, like guys that were living in the prison, right? And he's like, "Okay, this is what you say." And then like he would come back. He's like, "Well, no, he didn't give me," you know. So like he was like giving him these little tasks and helping him learn Spanish. Like without Ricardo, like I, I would have to agree with you. I think Tom that would have been it for Thomas. Well, and it's interesting. It's not just the Spanish; it's the culture as well, right? Because he's like, "Oh, I need you to go get this meat from the butcher," and he goes down there and he's like, "Make sure that he repeats the words a bunch of times." And he's like, "I know the words. I'm good." He goes down, asks them for the meats. They say they don't have it. And he comes back up and he's like, they don't have it. And he's like, I know they have it. I talked to them earlier today. I know they have it. You didn't say it right. And he's like, no, no, no. I, but he repeats it. And he's like, you pronounced it right. But you, if you just go in and ask for, the, for it, the storekeeper will say no. You need to talk to them first. Ask them about their day or something. Have a conversation, especially make them laugh. And then they'll be willing to sell it to you. And he's like, I'm their only customers. We're in prison. They can't branch out. Like what good is their store if they're refusing to sell to the customers because they didn't make a good enough conversation first. And he's just like, that's just the culture, man. That's just how it is. You know, it's, they'll just say no. If you don't make a conversation first and you just come in and ask for what you want, which is how stores usually work. He's like, they'll just tell you they don't have it or they'll just say no. It's like, like that would be such a hard thing to figure out on your own, especially as someone learning the language. Well, and it becomes true as some of the guards later on, Thomas has to tell other people like, no, you got to like make the guard laugh, right? Before you try to bribe him to get anything, you know, whether you're coming and going. It's interesting too, because Ricardo's explaining to Thomas that it's not so much that you're like a customer to these other, like to these people that have their shops or whatever else, or even if you're buying cocaine from somebody in the prison or whatever it is that you're getting. It's like you give them a present and then they give you a present. And Thomas is like, well, no, like I'm buying this. Like that's, I'm buying goods with money. And like Ricardo's like, no, like you're just being nice and giving them something and they're being nice and giving you something. Right. It just happens to be that you're giving them money and he's giving you exactly what you wanted. Right. (laughs) So you're right. It's, it's, it's a different, different way of thinking about things. Well, and, even with the bribes, like I thought this was really interesting. They want bribes 100% and they're constantly asking for bribes, but they don't want it to seem like they're taking a bribe. They want it to be like you're doing them a kindness and giving them something. Like when he kind of befriends the governor and he regularly brings him money, but it's not like, Hey, you're the governor. I'm an inmate. I'm going to give you money. So you let me do things. It's, hey, here's some money for your kid's school outfits or for petrol for the wife's car or whatever it is, you know? It's like, here's me giving you something nice. And then it's just kind of unspoken that he will let him get away with shit. But it's never like, here's a bribe. It's never, I'm bribing you. And it's crazy that, like, 
Rusty comes in there for like three months and bribes the guards in and out every time he comes and goes and then eventually gets arrested for bribing them by the main guy that he's been bribing. <laughs> Literally hands him a bribe and the guy takes it and then arrests him for bribery. And it's like, you've been asking me for bribes for three months. How does this make any sense? But to them, they don't see it as taking a bribe. It's so weird. At one point, Thomas was talking about the guards, how some guards will actually pay to get posted at the prison because it's lucrative, right? That's where you make the money as a guard. And so it's a very sought-after job. It creates this weird culture in the guards. Like, they don't want problems, and they certainly don't want to get in trouble themselves. There's a particular way of, like, quote, doing business in San Pedro because you don't necessarily want to throw somebody under the bus, right? Because you're just going to ruin your relationship with... Uh, anyone else. So it's, it's super weird and I'm still piecing it together in my head, what it would mean to like try to live in the San Pedro prison. The like couriers, like they have like postage couriers and yeah, the message carriers and yeah, like it's like just a group of people that just come into the prison and line up at the door. Like they're not prisoners. They just hang out there. And as like messenger men at, at this prison like as a job like and oh man the doctor when he first meets the doctor on day one because he's like i have like i'm coughing up blood I, i see a sign for a doctor over there i need to go see the medic and see what's going on and he walks in and the doctor's like oh hey you need to give me money like basically immediately and he's like i don't have any money and he's like okay bye and so he makes a big scene about just coughing up all of this blood like on the floor and whatever and the doctor's like fine whatever you know like here's a prescription you have a massive chest infection go upstairs and they'll give you like you know some meds and he goes upstairs gets to the desk the girl like fills out his prescription and then realizes he has no money and just takes it back like it's like money runs everything Nobody oh. is doing anything out of kindness. They are very kind to you when you have money, but the second that you don't, they'll just, they don't care. They'll let you die. You got to pay for everything, man. Yeah, 100%, which is interesting because he mentions how he finds out later that the doctor was actually an inmate and was there because he had stabbed his wife 14 times. <laughs> so it's like you get this these weird scenes where like he meets these friends and they're these goofy, you know, characters and then you realize after that, like you kind of have to remind yourself, like these are all inmates, you know, they're all hardened criminals. They're there for something terrible. Thomas is probably there for, you know, one of the least terrible things, despite, you know, obviously trafficking cocaine isn't great, but like you have, you're in with murderers and everything. Right. So like, (laughs) but you don't really get that feel because of, you know, how this place just feels like a small town almost. I think that's, one of the expectations that I had that was that was violated because I I sort of in my head before I even started reading this book I just sort of imagined that it was sort of a shanty town uh, that was enclosed right with like a you know a tall wall and a barbed wire fence and it was sort of a free for all once you got in but it was more of like a, like a collection of condos or like a bunch of townhouses or you know. And there just happened to be a wall around it. And somebody told you if you're allowed to come and go. And even some of the photos that are printed with the book, like it doesn't look like a prison. It just looks like it's just like some weird apartment building that just was turned into a prison, right? 
Yeah, and the walls like aren't even they don't look like prison walls. Like it could, looks like it could be tall walls separating like a main market area. Yeah. You know, or like a town center. Like it's I've been through neighborhoods in like Cuba and Dominican and Mexico and stuff that look like this area. And it doesn't even you pull up to it, it doesn't look like a prison. It looks almost like he even explains it as like looking almost kind of beautiful. Yeah. The walls just yeah. happen to be super tall and like four feet thick of concrete. But yeah, <laughs> like it looks like it could be like an apartment complex or like a central market or something like that. Like and the the pictures like there's you know, like a farmer's market going on and people playing chess and it's, it looks like pictures you would see of like a quaint small, small village in like the Dominican or something like it's so weird to see and then still be reminded that like, this is, this is a dangerous and violent place, but they almost have all of that tucked away in this like underground section where the base heads are, you know, there's, so they talk about base being this like really cheap and super addictive derivative of the cocaine process. Right. And it just makes you massively paranoid and super desperate. And all the people that smoke base spend all of their money on base. And so they can't afford a f- nicer, you know, cell, which is almost strange to call them cells. Like I keep wanting to say like room or apartment or whatever, Thomas has like a kitchen in his, and then he, I think he ends up getting a different room later on, but they don't have bathrooms. They all there's where he, the portion of the prison that he was living in. I think there was like a bathroom that he had to go downstairs to, Yeah, but he had his own kitchen. He had a refrigerator. He's a flat screen TV. Yeah. <laughs> He's like art up on the walls. Like, Oh it's, yeah. I mean, it's like if I decorated this bedroom, like, you know, like it's just, it's like a, it's like being in college almost, you know, it's like a college <laughs> dorm except in prison. And yeah. it's crazy that like they throw, it's honestly, it really has a feel of like a wild college dorm because they're throwing parties. Like there was yeah. one, but there's such a funny scene in there where like, he's like, oh, we have Carlos's party tonight. And like I had to read it a couple times. I even started because I'm like, what an obscure line to hear in a prison. <laughs> probably the only prison in the world where they're like yeah we're gonna go to carlos's party let's get like a bottle you know and some cocaine yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and they have like community events you know within their own little gated neighborhood the whole time i read it i was just constantly in disbelief of like is this place real like can i go see it i would have loved to go take a tour it sounds like you can because that sort of becomes Thomas's thing, right? Like, uh, I think it takes a couple of years before it takes off, but, uh, and it's really after this is weird. So I think that's what Thomas is best known for is becoming the tour guide of San Pedro. Right. But it starts because he's feeling really good. He gets a bunch of money that, uh, some of his associates owe him like from overseas and he's able to bribe, pay his lawyers, bribe the lawyers, bribe the judges. So he's feeling pretty good and he thinks that he's going to get off. Right. And so he's feeling really good about life. Uh, the, one of the suits that he had when he got arrest, arrested was like returned to him. So he gets his suit cleaned and then he bribes, uh, the guards and is it the major or the Colonel who runs the prison? I think they call him the governor or the governor. And, he basically gets like an escorted night out of prison, right? So he's dressed up. He goes with this guard to like a fancy restaurant and a hotel in La Paz. 
has like bottle of wine. They're both like eating and drinking, right? And then I think they go to a movie or something, and then they go to a nightclub, and then that's when he meets this woman. And of course, he's got like cocaine on him, right? So he's supposed to be back by a certain time, and like the guard's a little nervous. So he's like, "No, no, it'll be all right. It'll be all right." And he ends up like dancing and partying with like this Israeli girl. And convinces her and her friend to come back to the prison that night. And they just, like, stay up all night doing cocaine. <laughs> and that's how he beats his girlfriend. Yeah, for $130, he can buy himself, like, an evening pass. Like, a 12 hours outside of the prison. Like, <laughs> what? And he even mentions that he's, like, he thinks about escaping a few times. Because he's, like, with his police escort. Like, bought his escort a watch. Took him for dinner. All oh, these yeah. drinks. He's like, this guy's wasted. I could just walk away right now. But he doesn't because he thinks that he's going to get off. And if he ran now, that it would completely screw over everything that he's worked for, right? And so you're kind of like, okay, I get it. Like, you're just enjoying yourself. You're going to go back to prison, right? Yeah, because they had told him that he would be free by Christmas. Yeah, so he was like, oh, this is... He's like, hands down, I'm going to be out of here before long, right? So he's just like, no, no. I'll just take these ladies back to the prison with me. <laughs> Which is also funny because when he meets his lawyers, they're like, okay, this is our recommendation. Give the judge $5,000. Yeah. <laughs> That's his lawyers. They're like, just bribe the judge, man. That's your best bet. And he ends up giving him $5,000 more than was requested. And they're yeah, like, oh, you're definitely going to be out by Christmas for sure. And then Christmas rolls around and the judge is like, yeah, we're going to give you like four years. And they're like, that's a great result, man. That's really good for you. And he's like, I thought I was going to be out of here two months ago. That is not a great result. Yeah. Also, I gave that judge $10,000. Well, and Thomas explains it because corruption is so normalized in the judicial system that if he didn't bribe, then it would be indicative that he was guilty, right? So he was, you're kind of forced to bribe because if you just accept your sentence without attempting to bribe, it just looks like you're guilty. Your hands are kind of tied. It's like you have to, you have to like bribe the judges, right? It's such a bizarre thought oh, that man. like it's expected of you and more beneficial for you to bribe the judge. As so as you mentioned, so he meets Yoshida at the bar, right? Which apparently is not her real name. We never get to find out her real name, but uh, brings her home from the bar. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that, that are like, man, I have a hard enough time bringing a girl home to my house. <laughs> and this guy, like, went out and talked a girl into coming back to his place in a third world prison. <laughs> For the night. I, had, I had that same thought. I'm like, how many times did I blow it with some chick out at the bar, right? Because I just got too drunk or said the wrong thing or whatever, you know? And he's just like, yeah, so you want to go to this prison with me? Yeah. And she gets mad at him because she thinks he's lying. Yeah. He has to, like, convince her, like, please come back with me and I will show you that this is a prison. And they get there. And the friend, of course, leaves. The friend is pissed, like rightfully yeah. so. Like, hey, girl, maybe uh, don't go back with this guy who hasn't told you what he got arrested for yet and spend the night in a prison with him. And she's like, I will see you one night in prison and I will raise you moving in. <laughs> like, she 
moves all of her possessions from her hostel into his prison cell and just moves in for like a few months. I love this part because she's still traveling, right? And so she leaves for like a while and does like this, does this hike or whatever. I think that she goes to Peru or whatever and comes back. But one of the things that Thomas was explaining, it was like actually cheaper for her to live in the prison with him and bribe the guards to come and go than it was to stay in the hostel. <laughs> like, that's let not, that sink that's in. That's not a, uh, a traveling tip you're going to see in many, <laughs> many tour books. <laughs> yeah, just go to prison. It's cheaper than... <laughs> it's like, what? And, well, and they, they mentioned the same thing about that's why the kids are there, right? If the husband goes to jail... You know, the wife can't make enough money outside of the prison to to afford to raise and house the kids. And so they just have to move in with the husband. It's the cheapest, most affordable way to survive there when one of your family members is in jail, which is the whole thing. Like I kept like trying to blink it away, being like, is any of this real? It is real. And it feels like it shouldn't be because I think even one of the photos uh, that's printed in the book it shows a photo of like uh, Thomas and Rusty when Rusty was staying with him in the prison and uh, they organize a coloring contest for the kids. <laughs> right. So they get like all the, these crayons and stuff and like all like these coloring books. And so they're going to have this coloring contest for the kids. And you're like, this is as real as it gets, you know, like it's, I almost feel like I'm talking about a book that doesn't exist right now because it's so far fetched to process just the backwards way that this place is operating, you know? Yeah. It certainly doesn't feel like nonfiction. No, that's for sure. That's for sure. And, uh, yeah. And like you get into this bizarre chapter where he's like living with his girlfriend now and it's like an emotional roller coaster and he's like planning a life with her in the future, despite the fact that he hasn't had a sentence yet and has no idea when he's actually getting out of prison. And she's just like hanging out with him in the prison and partying and doing cocaine and then just leaving for like weeks at a time to go travel and then coming back. And he just goes like it's this emotional roller coaster where when she's there, he's the happiest man in the prison. And then when she's gone, he's just massively depressed. And like he talks about these dreams he's having about like meeting her ex-boyfriend and stuff like that, like just clearly losing his mind. I thought it was interesting when she leaves, she says something to him because she kind of gets fed up with the cocaine use and like the, I guess, the general life of dating a prisoner. (laughs) And, uh, but she says to him about the cocaine, she goes, you don't need it, Tommy. You think you do, but you don't. And then she's kind of just like, after that, they have a fight and a falling out and she kind of says goodbye and doesn't come back. And this is like a huge turning point for him. Right, like he hits a dark place. Well, he abuses pills. Like he somehow gets a hold of uh, sleeping pills, you know, because he has trouble sleeping. Right, because he's all dreaming about her ex boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, at one point, he like just takes all the pills. He's like, "Okay, that's it," because he talks about having the suicide button, right? The the red button that he could just press, and then that would just end his life, and then all of his problems would be over. Like he's. He goes through, it's not just all drinking rum and snorting cocaine and having fun in prison. There's a lot of that. And he sounds like he has a very good time and he leads a, you know, what would be called probably a very privileged middle-class life in prison. But he does get 
depressed and you see that and he talks about it and he's very honest about it and so it's sobering because you're like oh this is like a really good story and i can't wait to read the next chapter because i'm gonna learn something new and crazy about you know san pedro prison and then he's like oh and then i you know tried to kill myself you're like oh man like yeah i guess it's kind of sucks man (laughs) yeah like and this kind of all ties in together right like so he thinks he's gonna get out at christmas he doesn't things kind of fall apart with yoshida and then there's the incident with the three gang rapists that get brought into the prison oh yeah and man that's a dark chapter in the book and in his life. So they had seen on the news um, that there was these three gang rapists that had been caught in the country. And they get brought into San Pedro. And he says there's just this massive commotion, right? And he's like, doesn't know what's happening. He's like, what, did somebody's favorite team win like a football game or something? Or like, is this a celebration? Is it angry? And he sees them, like, carrying these men over their heads, and he's like, is this, like, a celebration for them or what's happening? And they get down to the well, which is, like, what they call this small little pool that has never really had any use. But it's, like... The La Piscina, yeah, the pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, like, part filled with water, and they just throw these guys in. It was almost hard to read, you know, I had a real moral clash because obviously, you know, when you think about someone like a gang rapist, you're like, yeah, I hope that guy goes to prison and dies. But that's kind of where your thought process ends. You don't tend to think about how or like what it would look like. You're just like, good, that person should probably die. And he describes in detail just how gruesome it is. And he, it was so unsettling to him that he actually even almost tries to stop it at one point. And someone like drags him out because they're like, you don't want to be seen trying to stop this. Like it's going to happen. Just let it happen. Go away. Well, there seems to be this understanding in the mob. Like there's very clearly like, like a mob mentality. But I think at that point... Thomas had been there for a while in the prison and started having a pretty good reputation for himself. And so I think these prisoners knew him as a foreigner, not a gringo, right? But a foreigner and pulled him away. And I got the sense that they did so because like, no, no, you don't understand what's happening. Cause like the bribes, it seemed like this was something that was just to the Bolivian prisoners, right? This was something that no one was going to get in trouble for. It was something that was almost sort of expected to happen to these gang rapists that all these prisoners learned about because they all have TVs and watch the news, right? It's sort of like this weird double whammy where Thomas is describing how these three men are murdered, like beaten and murdered and like how this guy's brains are like spilled out, right? Like some gruesome shit. But on the other hand, there's sort of this undercurrent where it's like, no, no, like this is just part of the system that's working, right? And this is this is normal. And so it's horrific and unsettling. And you're just, it's hard to reconcile what's going on at this moment in the book. Yeah, and you know, like 
I, in a way I kind of get it, you know, like you wouldn't want those people who had done something so awful to like get into this prison and thrive. But, you know, he even, he, he says himself like nobody really deserves this. Yes, that's true. He does say that. Yeah. And like, he shouts out to stop it at some point and which I was kind of like, I'm like, nah, man, like fuck those guys. Like who cares? But then at the same time, like, I can't even imagine witnessing that happen. You know, just an absolute angry mob, like, literally stomping people's heads in. And he mentions a moment where one guy, like, stops when he sees the, the guy's skull crack. And he he stops, and he's like, oh, they're going to, like, be done with this now. And he just stops to, like, wipe off some, like, brain fragments from his foot and then <laughs> carries on. Like, oof. So you've got this chain of events, you know, he's realizing that his sentence is going to be longer than he thought, you know, Yoshida leaves him and he witnesses this horrific, you know, prison justice and he goes into a dark place. Like, you know, he's already obviously abusing cocaine in prison, but he adds alcohol and pills and he talks about a time where he wakes up in the morning and his face is all like beat up and cut up and he doesn't actually even know if he just fell or if he got in a fight and he said he's too embarrassed to ask anyone. And he's just like kind of like a couple months go by where he's just in a zombie mode. And you know, I got to hand it to him for getting himself out of that. Right. And it's not like he doesn't have, like he's got friends, you know, so it's not like he's completely alone, but I don't know. Like it just, it just seems that when he's at that low point, I don't really have any plays or any sort of techniques or anything that I even understand myself that would be able to pull myself up if I'm at that point psychologically, right? I don't know what it's like to be Thomas McFadden. So I think that's that's part of the interesting read is you're like, this has been so incredible. Everything from how San Pedro works to the situation that Thomas is in. And then you're like, psychologically, like, what happens next for Thomas, you know? You can see the the different paths that he could take, you know? Like, he, he talks about people that were doing okay and then just kind of let it consume them, and they became base heads, right? They just start smoking base and just go downhill and downhill. There's an interesting moment, actually, where he talks about one of them that they've nicknamed Slow Mo. And uh, he, like is so paranoid about ghosts in the prison that he walks only at night and super, super slowly that he's like almost motionless. And he like keeps buckets to piss in, in his cell. So he doesn't have to leave any time during the day. And then it's just like creeping to the bathroom in super slow motion. And he sees him in the hallway one time and he's like, Hey man, like, are you all good? And he explains how he like slowly turns his head to like creep over and look at him and just kind of freezes like that. And it's just, this is, you know, the blatantly obvious path where he could go down if he lets this consume him and he'll just start, you know, the, the drug abuse will just go through the roof and it'll eventually become a base addiction. And then he ends up like the guy with the crack cat, down in the <laughs> underground sections, which we're not going to dive into. You can get into this book and learn about it yourself. It's it's insanity. One of the many things that we could we won't even have time to explain. But just all of these base heads that live just this absolutely 
terrible lifestyle in this prison. And then you could see the opposite. You know, he could take the path that he did take where he opens a storefront, does tours and kind of thrives and is able to represent himself more in prison and finds things in the day-to-day life to do to keep him, you know, more focused on on getting out. Well, because I think it was the tourists that pull him out because he was sort of surprised when one of the taxistas, the messengers, comes and calls him and basically words got out through Yoshida and her friend that, you know, you can go visit this guy. And that's sort of, well, it is how the tours start. And he really thrives on just having someone up in his room to explain how San Pedro works. And a lot of the times they're just as enthusiastic and enthralled with it as we are talking about it today. And that energizes him and it really carves a new path for Thomas, right? Because now he's got something to look forward to and he's has to keep a certain profile in prison to be able to cater to these tourists, right? Because you can't just like be like one of the hobo, you know, base heads giving out tours. Like, and there's even like rival tour companies that crop up with the other prisoners, but because Thomas has a better tour product, right? And I think he understands that and he's able to thrive as a tour guide in a prison. Yeah. Right. Like, and people are like coming in, getting a tour of the prison, staying the night in his cell and just partying and doing cocaine with him all night. Yeah. Like it's such a bizarre job to have inside a prison. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, his competition because um, there's a character they call Phantasma, <laughs> who's kind of this like wild, younger, dangerous kid who becomes like his main uh, prison tour competition, which is tough because like, you know, Thomas is better at it, but this kid is clearly dangerous. And he actually takes the wrong road. And I found some information on him uh, later on. Um, he actually ran the tours on the side afterwards until he ended up stabbing a fellow prisoner, in which case he was transferred to uh, a Chonchakuro, which is like a maximum security prison that they mentioned quite a few times in the book that's like a death sentence. Like nobody wants to end up there. And he ends up committing two more murders there. And in March of 2007, a couple of inmates stole his gun from him, which is also an insane thing to have in prison. Stole his 38 caliber pistol from him and shot him three times in the head. So it's like, you see, even with the tour guide thing, right? Like it's, it's mentality. You've got Phantasma who's just like still going insane. And Thomas who like really uses it to put his head in the right space and, and get to know people and share his story. And this is how he meets Rusty, right? Because Rusty is like a backpacker around the world and is told by all of these different people, like, hey, you got to go to San Pedro and do these tours with this guy named Thomas. Like, it's he mentions that it's in one of his, like, uh, like tour guidebooks or something for Bolivia is to, like, <laughs> go to the prison and do a tour with this guy. Like, it's insane. Like, the the reach that he ends up having just through these through these tours. This is fascinating because... So much, in fact, the entirety of how San Pedro works as a prison system, Ricardo calls it simple capitalism, right? 
That's I think that's the phrase that Ricardo uses uh, in one of the early chapters. This is simple capitalism. And so in a lot of ways, Thomas sees the need, right? And he sees a space where he can carve out a business. And you can almost read this as some weird economics lesson or a weird lesson in entrepreneurialism, right? Where here he's he's filling this void with like these prison tours and he recognizes that being able to speak English, you know, being able to, you know, he pretty well learns how to speak pretty good Spanish by, you know, the end of, uh, by the end of his sentence. And it's actually quite astonishing when you look at, you know, the dollars and cents and really the, the ledger that, you know, Thomas is running because it, it's all money. Right. And he talks about when he's running the kitchen, he owns his own restaurant and he hires like a cook to work out of one of the rooms. He's running his own shop. And so he's very in tune with where he's spending money, where he's losing money. He knows like when he can lend money out. And I think it's just a fantastic lesson in sort of in these micro economic situations in a place like San Pedro. Right. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting to see like how in tune he is with like the business side of things there between his restaurant and his storefront and his tours. And of course, having Ricardo to help him understand like the, the buy and sell, you know, I think as crazy as it is, I think that actually benefits the prisoners a lot because normally in a prison, it's just, you're in your cell, you get wreck time, you eat, you're back in your cell. It's the same thing every day. There's no goals, you know, there's no drive for anything. Whereas like in San Pedro, you can imagine yourself like, oh, I want to work harder and get a nicer cell or maybe buy a second cell and rent it. So I have some money or like get myself a TV or whatever it is, you know, like people have things they can look up to. And they even hold votes for like the community leader for each neighborhood and stuff. Like for who's the respectable member. Like you really prison, can, prison elections. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like you really can have something to look forward to here. And, and you see the, the stark examples of like the people that didn't buy in, you know, that were just like, I'm in fucking prison and just went down and out. And then the people that were like, I'm going to work my way up. And they don't even really mention that much the five star area where like there was a hint at like some of them might have hot tubs. Yeah. Uh, the one uh, trafficker, it was like Barbara Sosa or something like that. This guy's name, the red beard. He mm. had his own telephone and fax line installed for his, <laughs> Yeah, you know, there was a, uh, I can't remember who it was, but one of the prisoners in the five star section, actually paid contractors to add on another floor to his room. So he had like a, this two story room all of a sudden, like you're just like, <laughs> it's kind know, of like, as close to life on the outside as you can have in a prison. Yeah. And you know, one of my thoughts about this, uh, leading up to recording this episode, I was thinking like, is this good or bad? Right. I'm just like trying to think it in terms like objectively, you know, if you if you take out the cultural differences and how we understand, even how we socialize with other people, right? And I was just thinking, like, is this is this a prison system that could work? You know what I mean? Could you imagine this in the U.S. or in Canada? And I think the answer is yes, because it's so capitalist driven, right? 
because we already understand more or less how simple capitalism works, right? Or buy low, sell high, you know, interest rates on loans, paying people back, you know, taking care of your debts, working for, and you see most of the prisoners thrive, right? Like, it's not like the majority of San Pedro is just uh, infested with these base heads, right? It's the majority of everyone is doing okay. They're playing chess and checkers in the courtyard. Their families are living with them, right? They might be working in one of the other kitchens or one of the other shops. Like, they got shit going on. Like, they're getting educated, you know. They're, uh, their kids are getting educated, right? So, in a way, you're, you're kind of like, well, maybe they just figured out a better system. And it's sort of a hard pill to swallow because you're like, ah, man, like, bribing, you know, like, because that's something that's just probably not really going to fly in the day-to-day in a place like Canada, you know. But there, you're just like, everything is in terms of money. It's a very neoliberal way of thinking about it, right? Where you're always thinking in terms of of what the market's doing, right? Whether should I buy the sell, should I rent it out, or what should I, or should I hold on to it, or should I wait to buy, right? You know. So, I think in a lot of ways, most of us would already re- sort of once we understand, I guess the the ground rules. You know, a lot of us could probably hit the ground running in an environment like San Pedro. So part of me is like kind of wanting to see something like, like try something like that other than in Bolivia, you know, as some weird sort of prison experiment. Yeah. I, and like, I mean, I guess it depends which way you look at it. Part of me is like, we don't really want to make prison fun, you know, like <laughs> That's we true. don't want it to be like, there's people in Bolivia living on the outside of the prison that would be better off living inside the prison. Right. And like, you kind of want to avoid that situation. Prison needs to be a place no one wants to go to. But at the same time, like when you think about someone that spends, especially at a young age, if you get like 15 years in prison, by the time you're out, you know, you have no idea how economics work, like trying to learn buying a house or renting or whatever it is, or running a business, any of that, you have no idea. Whereas in a system like this, you really could like become an entrepreneur within the prison and then take that with you in when it, when you get your freedom. Cause it sounds like when Ricardo gets released, he does quite well, right? It's not like he's just been sitting in a cell waiting for his sentence to be over. It, it sounds like he does actually quite well once he leaves San Pedro. Ironically enough, he becomes a tour guide. <laughs> <laughs> And doesn't tell anyone about his time in prison. Also, uh, Ricardo is not his real name. But, uh, yeah, he does do quite well for himself, you know. And, like, we see it here a lot. Like, we almost expect, like, if someone's been in prison for a while and when they get out, we're almost kind of, like, expect them to work, like, a down-and-out job. Like, it's almost a life sentence in a sense that you're just never going to be, you know, the pinnacle of society. You're never going to reach that upper echelon once you've been in prison is kind of the way we view it here. Whereas, like, it should be the opposite, right? It's a rehabilitation center, you know? But I think, in my opinion, if you're going to establish that, we need to differentiate between lifetime prisoners and people that are going to get out. This is going to be controversial, but I myself am pretty pro-capital punishment in certain scenarios. So to me, it's like, look, I'm all for a system where you know, like this, where we can introduce capitalism into prisons and and give people some drive and like, hey, you know, 
you work hard while you're in here. You can upgrade your prison cell. You get a nicer cell and then you sell it before you leave and you come out of prison with some money, you know, and an understanding of how business works. Like you could open your own restaurant in some or maybe even just work in a restaurant because you ran a restaurant in prison, you know, but to me. It could be an expensive system and it's a thing we don't need to waste on people that are like, they're just there forever. You know, that's true. That is true. I think it was funny. There's, I can't remember exactly who it was, but, uh, in the book they were talking about how somebody came in with basically nothing and left when their sentence was over, like had to hire help to like move his furniture. Cause he had all of these possessions now, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it feels so backwards, right? I guess it's not a perfect system either, right? Because we already talked about how the gang rapists, you know, get murdered. And then there was uh, Prisoner's Day, which is a weird holiday to celebrate, right? And it was just an all-night party, right? And it's, it's exactly what you think it is. Like, Thomas is up all night drinking, doing cocaine with tourists, right? I think at one point, one of the guys, like, spills a bunch of the cocaine, and they're all just horrified when Thomas comes back to the cell because right. there's this all this. And he's like, oh, man, we just lost. And he's like, what? It's cocaine. Like, I've got 50 more grams right here. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, don't sweep that out of the carpet, dude. That's gross. Just use the new stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? And so there's, like, all this hilarious stuff going on, but I believe it's during Prisoner's Day where there's, like, unfortunately, like, there's a little girl that gets raped inside the prison. And it's another reminder that you're like, this is not a nice environment. Right. Maybe it is most of the time, right? But there's those dark moments that still persist in this environment. And you're just like, oh, fuck. And then you're reminded about, you know, the three gang rapists that get murdered. And you're like, ah, you know, and so it's this weird push and pull that I get with, with the morality that's, that's in this book, right? You're like, okay, maybe this is a system that is okay. And maybe it's not so shocking that this is how this prison operates. You know, maybe it's just because of my foreign attitude to it, right? My own biases. And then you're sort of, you're reminded, you're like, ah, you know, this six-year-old girl gets raped. You're like, well, maybe it's not working. Like maybe one rape is enough for it to make none of it okay, you know? So Yeah, I mean, I think there's some changes we could make, like don't have kids in the prison. And also, if we're going to do it in Canada, we would probably have to get rid of the cocaine facility in the basement, you know? <laughs> Which is like a huge, but who's, who's to say that's not part of why the system works, you know? And I'm not saying that we should start selling cocaine in prisons. I'm just saying that maybe, you know, people having that as part of the system, like it's a, it's a regular release of stress, you know, like addiction and having something to be addicted to that you can consume all the time is kind of providing a drive for them. You know, especially when they have long sentences, it's like, I work my job and get my money and get cocaine and do it again. Whereas it's like, it might almost feel dull as it does for a lot of people. You know, when you're saving for a house, like every time you put money in your savings account, it's not like you're throwing a party. You know, you're like, oh, I got more money in there. I got more money in there. I got more money in there. And it's just kind of monotonous. Whereas like, if you are saving to buy something much cheaper and you're getting to buy it more often, you feel a lot more excited about it, right? So that could be the effect that this cocaine system is having there where they're like, I've worked and now I get my cocaine and I get to party and whatever. Whereas like in Canada, 
there's certain things that we would have to remove from the system that might actually negatively impact it working here. Maybe I also have no idea what I'm talking about here. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have, think, I don't think we're going to solve prison reform yeah. in North America on this podcast episode. Right? We figured it out. Look at <laughs> Bolivia. <laughs> you just got to give them all cocaine and they'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyways, um, <laughs> it's now I'm just going to be thinking about that. Like, how could we make this system work in, in Canada? Well, and the other thing to remember, and this is something that Ricardo says when he's giving Thomas sort of the lesson on how San Pedro works. It's like in La Paz, right? That's the capital of Bolivia. It's like he, he says, like, the economy is dead. It's completely dead. And so... In a lot of ways, it's just for uh, San Pedro's is fertile ground for people to reinvent themselves in prison, right? Whereas in a place like Canada, you can go and get a job. You don't need to get yourself arrested to have a good life in prison, right? Which is the the counterintuitive thought that you have about uh, San Pedro and Bolivia is you're like, well, you know, if things are so bad, you know, maybe guys just get arrested and go to prison because they just have better access to everything that they need, everything that their families need. Whereas that's not necessarily the case in the majority of of a place like Canada, where most of us have pretty good opportunities in front of us to live a good life. I'm not saying we're all going to be millionaires and we're all going to own boats and, you know, we're all going to have the straightest, whitest teeth. Right. But you can do pretty good living in Canada as opposed, and I don't know what the hell it's like, living in anywhere in Bolivia. I, I only really understand what Rusty Young gave us in Marching Powder and Thomas McFadden's story, right? So knowing what I know about that, probably maybe I could survive in San Pedro, you know, if I had, you know, some help from the outside like Thomas did. But, man, it's still it's still prison, you know? Well, and the other interesting thing is that, like, the reason they hate gringos or Americans in the prison is because America had kind of created this policy that was like pushing international drug laws, right? Which really cracked down on Bolivia. And so that threw a lot of the people in the cocaine industry into jail, but that was providing a lot of money for the people in the cities. And so now they're all in, in San Pedro prison where the American government kind of keeps their hands out of it. Once, once they're in prison, that's it. And so now you've created a place for them to do this job that was so, you know, prominent in their country, but they're doing it behind the walls of the prison instead of outside so that money's not getting sent back out. You know, it's not trickling down through society and it kind of starved the flow of money to the civilians and kind of specifically gave it all to the prisoners. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think you're right, because even Thomas talks about how during the slow times and the good times with the tours he was giving, it was a way to get more money into the prison economy, right? And so I think that's a reminder that, you know, if everyone's making cocaine and helping cocaine get out of Bolivia, whether you see that as something that's morally okay or not, you take that away, what's putting money into their economy? So you have a drug policy, right? Like the war on drugs, the fumigation, right? They were fumigating the the cocoa crops 
and there's no policy to fill the void that you're taking out of the entire country's economy and you see it you see it fail yeah exactly and like you know you've got you know not that i'm against international drug laws but you take a country like the united states or canada like you said where from a baseline standpoint the opportunity for success is much higher than in a third world country so when you take our drug laws and our drug policies and apply them to a third world country where you know these illegal substances are providing a lot of the income and then you take that away like you know you know it's not universal it's not like you can you can take it away in Canada United States and there's still all these other opportunities you take it away in these third world countries and you're just starving them out you know like it does not apply the same to everywhere and then you just end up with it's exactly the same as prohibition right when prohibition days came people just still found a way to sell it yeah <laughs> the money just went elsewhere you know and so That's right. you know thomas actually takes makes a deal in prison selling cocaine back to england from the prison like it doesn't in you know you throwing him <laughs> jail doesn't actually change his operation he just finds new people to do it with yeah and uh he describes his method of just sending it in the mail you know <laughs> Yeah, like, oh, we might lose some here and there, but it's so profitable that who cares? Yeah. Now, there's a business that failed in the prison, and I I completely forgot about this until just a few moments ago. So Thomas gets this weird tourist that just leaves him money, like this big fat guy, right? American guy, (laughs) leaves money. He doesn't want to do coke, doesn't want to drink, just wants to chat with Thomas. And he's coming back night after night. And he's leaving like a lot of money. It's not like leaving a $20 bill. He's leaving like hundreds of dollars each night. And this fucking fat American comes back, chatting with Thomas. And finally, Thomas is like, hey, man, like, what's the deal here? And so he's like, okay. This fat American's like, I got to go back pretty soon. But I'm like high up in the Mormon church. And I want you... Thomas McFadden to start a Mormon church, a chapter of the Mormon church here in the San Pedro prison. He's like, we'll send you supplies and Bibles. We'll give you a salary. Right. And so Thomas is a businessman. He's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so he ends up like, Oh, starting this Mormon parish. And it just completely flops because nobody comes. Everyone's like hardcore Catholics in Bolivia, right? So, of course, Mormonism isn't going to take off. And, you know, he's like getting sent all these Bibles and stuff. And for a while, I was getting paid by the Mormon church. But then like, you know, and he's lying to him. He's like, oh, yeah, I just I got more parishioners. I got more people coming, right? And then... Yeah, maybe men- you should send more money for benches <laughs> and Bibles. <laughs> And then they get wise to the fact that he's just fleecing them, right? But it's like, and it's just such a fun example of of a business that just fails in the prison, right? And so <laughs> maybe it would have worked. I don't know. But like, it's just, it's just so funny that at one point he was just like, you know, the Mormon guy on the inside, right? I don't even think he really says if he believes in God or not. I don't think it really matters. He's just like, okay, I'll just read the Bible you know, yeah, I once think a he week. Even says that he's like, well, because he he says right to the guy that was visiting, he's like, "Look, man, like I don't really believe," and he's like, "Yeah, but you only really have to be open to it." He's like, "As long as you're open to the idea of it, you're helping other people become open to the idea of it." Yeah. <laughs> so he finds like a weird moral loophole where he's like, "It's not really actually that shameful." 
you know, because maybe, you know, I'm kind of like open to it. And so I'll just take the money and maybe ask if anyone else wants to be open to it. Because it kind of sounds like this fat American's like, well, if you're open to it now and you just like read and work through it, like you'll just, you'll just, you'll, you'll get to that point where you believe. Right. And then Tom's like, okay. (laughs) Which, you, you know what, man, like. I think it's kind of ridiculous that they would come, the Mormons would come to this prison in a third world country and be like, this is our people. You know, we're going to find these people that are so down and out right now that we're going to try to convert them now. So it almost feels like a predatory nature to me. I mean, I've never been super pro religion, but so for Thomas to just be like, yeah, I'll take your money and like, you know, build a little section here where we (laughs) pretend that we, you know, get together and worship or whatever. Like to me, it's like to flip that predatory nature around. It just made me so happy. I was like, (laughs) good for you, man. Why not? Like they came to you and wanted the opportunity and you were even open enough to say like, I don't really think I believe. And they were like, doesn't matter. All right. I'm in. Oh, so I know that we have so many things we could discuss about this book. It's a long book. Like it's a few hundred pages. You know, I think you mentioned that you read it in like 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Two, two night shifts at work. So hopefully nobody from work actually listens to this. Um, <laughs> I was on night shifts and just smack. Dude, I couldn't put it down. I could not put it down. It was such a fantastic story. And it's interesting because you had even said, I believe in the preface episode that this could be our new one man caravan. Because it was, it was the it was book looking that like we it. didn't know, you know? Yeah. So there is a, a ton of things that I do want to talk about with this book. But there's, I also don't want to talk about them, you know? Like, I don't want to give away all of the things. There's all these little surprises, I think, right? It's just, it's like just getting like a little treat, you know? It's sometimes there's like a holy fuck moment or a holy shit moment, but there's just like, all these little things, you're like, wait, what? And then I found myself like going back a couple sentences. You're like, is that really what's going on here? You know, the other thing that I want to say about that is I don't doubt anything that Rusty Young wrote about Thomas McFadden's story, right? I don't think that there's anything you're like, did that really happen? You know, you're reading about a guy that's in prison. They would probably say or do anything that they could to give themselves a leg up. But I don't, I never got that sense that we were being lied to at all when we're reading this book. I think that, you know, probably out of all the books that we've read up up to this point in the season, I, I get the sense that this is probably the most honest, you know, objectively honest book. Yeah, It's funny you say that because I had some thoughts on this. I was like, I I kind of agree. I don't feel like they're lying to you. You know, he admits when he's wrong in a lot of places, you know, he talks about his mistakes with the Yoshida or, you know, his uh, things that he shouldn't done as a drug trafficker and and all of that. Right. Because he's got very real emotions and even the moments where he's lying to some somebody that he knows. Right. And you're like, I can see why you're not being entirely honest with this person right now. Like you get a, a very honest understanding of someone's human character the funny thing about it is i remember thinking to myself how 
are these conversations written down in such great detail when they're being remembered over multiple years by a whole group of people that just have a massive cocaine problem? (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's no way all of the, all of the dialogue is entirely accurate. The facial expressions and like, you know, there's gotta be, Unless he was like writing it down early on or like really thinking about it. But man, when I try to tell my stories, I don't really remember the the facial expressions people had in like four years in prison of like who laughed and who said what. And I'm like, there's, there's gotta be at least a little bit of embellishment just to fill in the gaps of memory loss, you know? Well, I, I think that you're, Absolutely right. As much as that's hard to admit, I you raise a very good point. And I even think about my own years when I was just a blackout drunk bastard. I'm like, man, there's a lot of shit I don't fucking remember. <laughs> exactly. You know, like and you, you, you know, you fill in a little bit, which I wouldn't consider to be lying. I think it's if you were to tell it the way that someone that has done too, too much cocaine tells it there, you're probably going to it's not going to be as exciting. Right. You're not going to get the detail and the depth and. He probably has a general idea of who reacted in what ways, but the word for word and like when somebody scoffs or scowls or whatever it is, it's like, I think there's a lot of stuff that you have to add in to give the book some, some, some detail. But I highly doubt that, that anyone's going to remember all of this, let alone someone that basically every night is doing tours and bringing in, you know, tourists to do cocaine with all night. Well, in, the, in one of the later chapters, Thomas says that there was really only like a two-week period in the entirety of his four years there that he didn't touch coke. Like he was always doing some amount of cocaine. For someone that never, admittedly had never done cocaine, even though he trafficked it, smuggled it out of countries, he never touched cocaine until he was in San Pedro, Right. There's a funny moment there, actually, where he says, like, nobody should pressure someone into doing drugs if it's their first time. (laughs) Bro, you're an international drug trafficker. Like, what are you fucking talking about? You know what? I get it. Like, there there is a difference, right? Like, you're providing the drugs. And there's a lot of places in the world that would believe that people should have the right to consume the drugs if they want to consume the drugs. And so you can provide drugs to people without saying that you support peer pressure, but it does sound pretty ridiculous for someone that's in jail because they tried to bring five kilograms of cocaine back home to be like, this isn't morally sound at all. These people are peer pressuring me to do cocaine. And then immediately after he goes, I actually don't blame them for doing that because I felt fantastic and have spent many years doing that exact same thing to multiple tourists. (laughs) (laughs) which again is just more honesty you know yeah he doesn't try to make himself sound like an angel but where i was going with this is like i I definitely want us to have a good chunk of content on this because i love talking about this book but i want to leave as much as i can for people to experience because so far out of our entire season this is the one that i would recommend the most to anybody and out of both seasons, it's between this one and One Man Caravan. And I, the only reason I think I would recommend this one more is because I think it reaches a wider audience than One Man Caravan, simply because 
there was some technical, you know, motorcycle based mechanical things in, in one man caravan, whereas this is societal, you know, everyone can understand the idea of being in prison and drug trafficking is, you know, either a problem or a hot topic in pretty much every part of the world and uh, economics, obviously. So I think this reaches a lot more people. So it's one of those books where I've even tried to struggle with like when, when people are like, what book are you reading for the podcast now? And I like try to start telling them about it. And then I'm like, no, go read it. <laughs> like I don't, I know myself and I'll just get on a spree and I'll basically just regurgitate this whole book to you. And I just want to like keep myself from stealing some of that magic away. Cause like I said, I, I opened this book and within two night shifts at work, just smashed through it because I couldn't stop. And I don't want to take any of that away by people reading through it and finding spots where we talked about a little bit heavily and they're like, Oh, I already kind of know what's going on here. And it, it just steals that. And to be fair, we've recorded about an hour and a half here and we've reached maybe a halfway point in this book. Yeah. We haven't, Oh, there's still so much and missed so many insane bits that happen in between. Like it's, I don't think we could talk about it too much, but I also just don't want to spoil too much of it and steal the experience that I got to have from people, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree with, uh, I agree with what you're saying. And just to speak to my excitement and my love of this book, uh, I go and get an allergy shot once a week and one of the, I'm starting to like get to know some of the people in this clinic and one of the uh, nurses uh she's a big reader and like she's always asked me what i'm reading because i got to hang out for 20 minutes after i get this shot before i can go back out into the wild she's always asked me what am i reading i'm like oh i finished marching powder and she's like yeah you were talking about the lot that last week and i'm like oh it's i've got like one chapter left it's so good i'm just like going on and on and on about this book and she's just like she's like you know what She's like, well, who wrote it again? And she's like punching it into her phone. She's like, I put a hold on it at the library. And as soon as it comes available, I'm going to read it. Like, so my enthusiasm was genuine enough and, and, and big enough that this woman was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll read this book about cocaine and a prison that this guy with neck tattoos is recommending. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And I think the greatest part about it is that like, for a work of nonfiction, I think people that only read fiction could really enjoy it because it doesn't seem real at all. Yeah. <laughs> like it sounds like a made up story. It does. And there was apparently talks of this becoming a film at one point. Yeah, there were some rumblings that actually, uh, uh, I think it was uh, Brad Pitt's like production company or something had bought the rights to it and then they were going to do something. There was talks about having Don Cheadle play Thomas McFadden, <laughs> you know, so... This is this is after he gets arrested for treason in Rwanda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. I dude, as much as I love Don Cheadle, I don't think he's the guy. No, I and uh, there was another actor that came up so and I think uh I was just reading a little snippet on Wikipedia earlier today and I think plans for the movie kind of fizzled out at this point, but who knows, fingers crossed and might it might make its way onto the big screen. I would love to see it. And you know what? I think Brad Pitt's company would do a great job of it because they did World War Z, which was also a fantastic book, and the movie was phenomenal. You know? It's been a while since I've seen that one, but I remember liking World War Z, so... One of my favorite zombie movies and a great zombie book as well. 
And I mean, I know it's not his product. Well, I don't believe it's his production company, but like Brad Pitt was in Fight Club, which is probably one of my favorite like recreations from a book to a movie ever. Yeah. And I think even the author, Chuck Palahniuk, said that the ending of Fight Club, the film was better than the ending that he wrote in the book. So just to give the film a little bit of a push upwards, it's it's one of those adaptations that you could argue beats the book. So I'm I'm really hoping Brad Pitt hears this and decides to <laughs> go through with the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One can dream. So with that being said, I would like to dive in a little bit to some information about where they are now. Because I don't think it's a spoiler for us to say, like, we we know he gets out of prison, right? He's written this book after being out of prison. So it's it's interesting. I thought that there would be a lot more information on Thomas because the main story was about him. But if you look up where he's at now, it basically just says, Thomas is now a chicken farmer in Tanzania. <laughs> and... And that he's named one of his sons Rusty. That's code like, that's for that's that's code for I still smuggle cocaine out of like. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I didn't even think about it that way. Yeah. I thought about it as like he just got as far away from it all as he could. But it, maybe he did. I don't know. Like um... I like that train of thought, though. It's like don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> don't X-ray these chickens. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, it's it's quite possible. Like as I. I didn't really read up on what any of these people are doing. Uh, th- there is a bit of a snippet in the back of the book, what everyone's kind of doing now. But of course that was like back in, you know, 2003 when this book was, pu- I think this book was published in 2003. Anyways, um, I, I would believe that Thomas is just raising chickens and just living a quiet farmer's life in Tanzania, right? Like, or is it Tanzania or Tuzania? Tanzania. Oh, okay. The one thing I was disappointed about was to see that he never reconnected with Yoshida. Yeah, that's sort of that's that's like the the Hollywood thing, right? You know, I had high hopes for sure. Yeah, that would have been all right. Prison romance, man. Yeah, not in the drop the soap kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> as for Rusty, there's actually some crazy information so he ends up after like the book comes out he ends up getting recruited as a program director of the u.s government's anti-kidnapping program in Colombia. like i guess because he wrote a successful book it seems weird he's also i believe he's a lawyer i think it said that it's almost like a throwaway moment where he's a lawyer but he's just kind of doing his own thing it sounds like maybe he might have come from a bit of money or something like that yeah, they said he was like a law graduate, but not really, you know, anything. It's not like he know, was going to go. Yeah, it's not like he was going to become a Philadelphia lawyer or anything like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, so now he's like a program director for the U.S. government's anti kidnapping program in Colombia. Wow. And uh, he, he was. He said in an interview that the job was so dangerous he had to keep it a secret even from close family members. Really? Wow. So 
yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Like he kind of really went somewhere. I, I was uh, not expecting it to be his information that we got afterwards. Um, and then uh, he did a documentary called Wildlands, which is produced by Ubisoft, which is pretty interesting, uh, where he interviews like famous people in the drug world, formally involved in the drug world. So George uh, Young or Jung, played by uh, Johnny Depp in the movie Blow. Oh, one okay. of the people that he interviews and uh oh wow and uh john velasquez or john popeye velasquez the right-hand man of pablo escobar one of the deadliest hitmen in cartel history like interviews him and it's it's pretty interesting like it's this uh season has has not had a shortage of uh documentaries to watch afterwards because of our oh wow the books we've read so yeah it was pretty interesting and as for everyone else like we said you know uh, there's no information on Yoshida aside from the fact that that wasn't her real name. Uh, Ricardo, apparently also not his real name, just stayed in La Paz and is a tour guide. And Phantasma pretty much just went downhill and died. Oh, <laughs> there's little bits of information on like a bunch of the other characters in the book that I didn't want to add just because it does give some background on their story. And I kind of wanted the the experience of meeting all of them to be authentic, you know? So, but, uh, yeah, I kind of like the idea that Thomas is just a humble chicken farmer now. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like good for him. You know, he, he didn't fuck it up. And if, you know, I hope he's living like a happy, successful life doing his thing, you know, that warms my heart to know that he just didn't fuck it up. Right. He just, for whatever sort of reformation was happening with him, uh, however, however he rehabilitated himself, it happened, right? And I think that's an important takeaway. He just didn't just become some guy, you know, he, he got himself out, got a book written. Like that's pretty miraculous for anybody that's been in those circumstances, you know, basically being on the edge of death, you know, in the first few weeks that you're in prison to just living out your days. Like that's. If that's success, like, you know, awesome. Good for Thomas. I'm I'm happy to hear that, right? Yeah, because you really do root for him in this story. Oh, yeah. You know, like, you, you want him to get out of it, even though, like, he's not exactly a hero, you know? Like, he's in there for international drug smuggling, but you really do want some success for him. I think it's just you get a very human connection from his storytelling, you know, despite all the, like, crazy drugs and parties and whatever he just feels very relatable in some way. Yeah, I think he does, you know. And just uh, maybe I'll just throw in my rating real quick. I'm giving it a 94, and I think that's pretty obvious. I just want to say that the way it's written, and it does, you know, you got to suspend disbelief a little bit, like you were saying about the direct quotes you know, the little mannerisms that there's no way that somebody would have remembered all that. So if you suspend all that and you just look at what's written, it's not pretentious. He's he's really coming at you from a very level playing field, right? You know, when you read some books and you're like, oh, this, this person's kind of talking down to me a little bit, you know, you can tell that, man, did you really have to use that big old word? Like, now I got to fucking pull out the dictionary or, like, look up a word on my phone. You know what I mean? You know? Yeah. Uh, I think this is this is a book that uh, isn't trying to get 
over top of itself. And so that's part of the charm and part of my enjoyment of reading it is I, I think it's as, as close to the earth as possible. Yeah. I, I mean, I 100% agree with you. Um, for anyone that, uh, has listened to the first season, you'll understand this reference, but this book was 100% my tomato soup. (laughs) 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 This is, this is a 94 through and through, man. I I love this book. It's exactly what I was looking for. Uh, I, I pro honestly, I probably will read it multiple times again, just because it's a fun story. And I think there's enough that happens in this book that I probably, if I read it again right now, would would reread things that I had almost forgotten had happened just because it's event after event after event, just constantly through the whole whole book. I was never bored of any of it. I never, you know, it was it was wild enough to be exciting, but never felt so wild that you were like, yeah, you're making that up, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it's paced very well. There isn't like any moments where you kind of got to slog through it. You know, you're right. It's, there's always enough going on and enough surprises that I think you're right. This is definitely going to be a book that I read again. Right. And I'm probably going to be telling lots of people that need, that they need to read it. Right. I already have a few people in the back of my head where I'm like, I know that this person and this person and this person would probably really like marching powder. Yeah. This is one of those books that has like enough kind of international culture to it that I would want to recommend it to my mother, but enough dark spots that there's no fucking way I'll ever recommend this to my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's some scenes that like, if I was like, read this book and then she got to them, she'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) You get it all folks. You get it all. Well, uh, with that being said, uh, where can people get a hold of you? Oh, we got to talk about, we always forget this, or we've no, been forgetting it terrible. lately. We are actually terrible about this. What are we reading next? Hold on. <laughs> Man, this season has been flying by. I have been enjoying it so much. Oh, it's been great. So the next book we have is The Spy and the Traitor, The Greatest Espionage Story of the Cold War by Ben McIntyre. Now, this is a book that I've read before, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, It's a story of a double agent for the British and the Russians, you know, obviously started working for the KGB and uh, became a double agent for the Brits. And it is an intense story of Cold War espionage and just how archaic the communication felt back then. There's definitely some like edge of your seat moments in this book where you're like, I like, how is he going to get out of this? Like, how does, how does this happen? And how is this even real? You know, like it's, it not that long ago, but it feels like an Hollywood only kind of thing, you know? And, uh, it's a, it's an amazing story about someone that really started in a weird place and became an amazing man. So I'm excited for uh, you to get to experience it and for us to share it with the fans. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I've, uh, it's just like sitting over there. I haven't started it yet. So, and this is, um, if you recall in the preface episode, the, the cover of the, of, uh, the spy and the trader that I have, the version that I have, it's very yeah. similar to, um, the one by Bill Browder that we read red notice. 
because uh, it's kind of got the silhouette in front of the Kremlin, right? I believe it's the Kremlin in uh, in Moscow, I believe. So yep. it was sort of weird because I thought I had already bought and picked up the book and I had to like text my girlfriend. I'm like, hey, can you go into the basement and see if I have this book? And she's like, uh, you have this book. I'm like, oh, weird. That's like almost exactly the same as, you know, Red Notice, but it's not. <laughs> Yeah, actually, when you said, oh, what book are we reading next? I actually went to reach for Red Notice because I was like, oh, it's right here. It's not. That's for sure not right there. (laughs) And actually, um, I will say uh, the author has a bunch of other great books, you know, connected to World War II, the Cold War, stuff like that. This like espionage stuff. If you're into it, I've read a few other ones by the same author and they were they were pretty fantastic. So excellent. Yeah, I'm excited to get into it, and people's, people have places to branch off if they want to. Yeah, if you want to find me, best place to find me is on Instagram, because I check that shit, like, every hour. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm a fucking teenager. Um, I'm just at Jonah Condro. <laughs> you can send me a DM. So, yeah, I'm, like, always on Instagram. And I appreciate, um, uh, over the last little bit, there is uh, some people that I've got to start listening to this to this podcast. So I'm still glad that we're hooking in new people. So if you like what we've got going on here, let us know, let us know what kind of books you're interested in. Cause we still haven't really figured out season three yet. And you know, you don't have to share every episode with your friends, but like if there's one where you're like, Hey, I think so-and-so might like this. You should definitely just give it a share. Right. So spread it around that, uh, that helps us out. And I just like hearing about when people read our stuff, or read our stuff when people listen to our podcast and they really like it. So yeah, the, the feedback is great, you know? Um, and of course one of the main pieces of feedback that I get is when are you guys doing chaos? We're almost there. Yeah. We're so close. (laughs) That's going to be a heavy hitter. Uh, might have to be a double episode. We will see. Um, so, I am enlightened underscore dirtbag on Instagram. If you want to see what I do in my spare time when I'm not, you know, rambling half-assedly about books. Um, or if you just want to catch our podcast content, see our promos, we're going to try to post up some extra little clips about other books we like or behind the scenes stuff or information that we've uncovered since doing our episodes. Uh, you can find it at enlightened dirtbags podcast on Instagram. And, uh, on any of those three, you know, send us some feedback, send us some messages, uh, give us book suggestions, give us season three uh, topic suggestions, and any books that you want us to see to read for that, and just let us know books that you loved, and give us new stuff to read, man. We're always into it. Uh, thanks for joining us. Catch you on the next one. Peace.